At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? All right, well, we are going to dive in this morning, dive in to the deep end uh, of Scripture. At least that's what it feels like for me as I've been studying over this last few months, getting ready for this sermon series. So we're going to be in Matthew 24 and 25. And what happens in these couple of chapters, um, if you know how long the Gospel of Matthew is, it's 28 chapters, and we're in chapters 24 and 25. So we're at the end of Jesus' ministry. We're right down to the wire before he's crucified. And right at the end of his time with the disciples, Jesus starts talking about the future. Not surprising, right? He's about to leave, and so he's talking to them about when he's going to be gone. He's talking about the future. So this, these couple of chapters are often referred to as the discourse on last things, the discourse on the end. And Jesus is not just going to talk about the, the distant future and the very end. He's also going to talk about, as we'll see today, some things that were to happen in the immediate future. But nevertheless, he needed to prepare his disciples for. So as I said, we're, we're jumping into the deep end as it regards Jesus' teaching ministry and some things he's going to say about the future. But it is incredibly practical and helpful. Matthew chapter 24 through 25, we're going to be here all the way till Easter. So I'm super excited to dive into this. Let me set these chapters up regarding a little more context with where chapters 24 and 25 fall within the gospel of Matthew, within this narrative of Jesus' life. If you're familiar with any of the gospels, if you're familiar with Jesus' ministry on earth, then you are aware that he stirred things up within Israel, within Jerusalem. He had confrontation after confrontation after confrontation with the religious establishment in Jerusalem people he will refer to here, we'll see in a minute, as the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, this tension begins early on in his ministry, and it just builds and builds and builds until it is reaching a fever pitch by the time we reach chapters 24 and 25. In the next chapter or two, these same religious leaders are going to condemn him to death. That's how serious this conflict has gotten between Jesus and and the religious establishment. Well, in Matthew chapter 23, the chapter that immediately precedes chapters 24 and 25, in chapter 23, Jesus is, not without significance, in the temple. Jesus is in the heart of religious and cultural life of God's people. He is in the temple, and he verbally assaults the religious establishment. If you have ever read Matthew 23, it is brutal. He lays it on the scribes and Pharisees. And it would be one thing for him to have done this in Galilee, far away, but he is in the epicenter 
of religious and cultural life for the Jews. And he takes these guys out. So I want you to get a sense for this. This is the very end of this diatribe. Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 36. Jesus says, woe to you. This is a (laughs) kindly translated way to say, you are going to hell. Curse you. And he's gonna literally say that in just a couple of verses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you you build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets, but thus you witness against yourselves, you scribes and Pharisees. When you say these things, when you decorate their tombs, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets, I send you wise men, I send you scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you will do all of these terrible things so that on you may come the righteous blood shed on earth from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of this is going to come on you in this generation. So Jesus says, It's gonna be on you. The blood of the prophets is going to be on you. In other words, the consequences for what you've done is going to be on you. Judgment is going to be on you, and it's going to happen in this generation. So he's saying judgment is going to happen, and it is going to happen relatively soon. So, this naturally leads to the question, what's going to happen, Jesus? What is this judgment against the religious establishment going to look like? Well, the disciples quickly ask this question and start to get an answer. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, the chapter that we're looking at, Jesus begins, or Matthew begins this description this way. Jesus left the temple, verse one. So now they were in the temple, now they're leaving. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point out the buildings of the temple. But Jesus answered them, you see all these buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So that's what's going to happen. The temple is going to be destroyed. This is what the judgment against the religious elite is going to look like. The destruction of 
the temple, the total destruction of the temple. He says not one stone is going to be left upon another. So if you live in a brick house, imagine someone saying to you, not one of these bricks is going to be left in place. That's how complete the destruction will be. And this is a huge deal. The temple was the center of religious and cultural life for God's people, the Jews. If the temple is going to be destroyed, then it's emblematic that the entire people are going to be destroyed. It's kind of like if someone attacked the White House. Their attack wouldn't just be an attack on the people actually living and working in the White House. It would be an assault on our whole country because the White House has that kind of symbolic significance. It's the same with the temple in Jerusalem. For Jesus to say the temple is about to be destroyed is basically saying the whole nation of Israel is going to be destroyed. And so the disciples then naturally want to know next, when is this going to happen? Jesus had said it's going to take place in this generation, but the disciples want further clarification. So starting in verse three, Jesus and the disciples have left the temple. They've made their way east of the city to a place called the Mount of Olives. And right away, the disciples ask, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And then starting in verse four, Jesus launches into a lengthy two-chapter answer, and that's what we're going to be studying in the next several weeks. So Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to start in verse 1 through verse 14. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple But Jesus answered them, you see all these buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered the disciples, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will 
be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we approach unsettling times when the difficulties of our world seem to be coming at a rapid pace? How do we approach life when the changes in our world aren't mere blips, but more like seismic shifts? How do we handle it? Chaos, uncertainty, confusion, change, turmoil, pain on a wide scale. All of these negative realities impact our individual lives at different times, but there are also times when those negative realities impact our world all at once. So think of this in the context of your home when someone gets sick. Like it's one thing for one person to get sick. Hey, one man's down, let's do what we gotta do to help that person and also pick up the slack to do the chores that they normally do around the house. It's one thing for one person to go down, but it is a lot different when one family member gets sick and then another goes down and then another and another and before you know it, this virus has run through the whole family and it quickly becomes like a war zone. Everything's a haze, every man for himself. The baby can change his own diaper. The bathroom is a nuclear wasteland. No one can help anyone. One person gets sick, no big deal. The whole house gets sick, that is hard. Well, we can expand this out to our entire world. Sure, our individual lives go through seasons of difficulty, but it also can happen that our world goes through seasons of difficulty. Well, the disciples knew. When Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, the disciples knew there is about to be an unsettling season for our nation. In the same way, if someone told you on divine authority that the White House will be destroyed within your lifetime, if you heard that, then you would know, well, if that's true, we're about to enter a rough season for our country. So how do we approach unsettling times? And what guidance does Jesus have for his disciples as as they get ready for this disturbing season? Let's look at this. We're gonna see four directions for unsettling times. First, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Look again at verses four and five. The very first thing Jesus says in response to the disciples' question is, see that no one leads you astray. So the KJV translates this verse, see that no one deceives you. The ESV that we're reading, they opt for see that no one leads you astray because the idea is to not be led astray through deception. So the kids and I were recently reading the fable Little Red Riding Hood And the wolf in that fable doesn't try to take advantage of Red Riding Hood through sheer force. No, he tries to deceive her. 
He dresses up like grandma. He lures her in. He lures her in through deception. That's what Jesus is saying to be wary of. See that no one leads you astray through deception. Now, why do disciples need to be careful not to be led astray? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse five. He says, see that no one leads you astray, verse five, for or because many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus says, this is what you need to be on the lookout for, false Christs, leaders who say they come in Jesus' name, leaders who are even willing to say, I am the Christ. He says, if you get a whiff of anything like that, don't buy it. Don't be deceived. Because here's the thing. Unsettling times are scary. And fear can make us vulnerable to certain leaders. Leaders who seem strong. Leaders who seem like they can help us get through. Leaders who seem like they're a stabilizing force in the midst of the madness. But we need to be careful. We need to examine these leaders' lives. We need to scrutinize their claims. We need to test them on the basis of what God's word says about leadership because there are certain leaders who are opportunists. They're going to want to take advantage of people's fears and anxieties, but what these leaders could be doing is leading you astray. Again, think about this on an individual level. Think about times in our lives where we were vulnerable to negative influences, negative leaders. It's often during difficult times in our lives. So maybe when your parents divorced in middle school and you were sad and afraid and confused, it was during that time that you were susceptible to some negative influences because you were trying to cope. You were trying to figure things out and so you were willing to fall into deception. Or maybe it was during your first year in high school, this new place, these new people, you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to figure out where you fit in. It can be a difficult time, a lonely time, a confusing time, and it can be a time where you are vulnerable to negative influences, to negative peer pressure, because you're trying to deal with the pain. You're trying to deal with the difficulty, and so you're willing to give in. Well, again, you can... Expand this dynamic out on a wide scale. During unsettling times, we are vulnerable to opportunistic leaders because we're trying to deal with the unsettling nature of the world. And we want to find hope and a solution in a leader. But Jesus says, do not be deceived. Make sure that you are not led astray. If you hear of a leader making claims that he can bring salvation, making claims that he is the solution to all our problems, making claims that almost sound like the claims that Jesus made about himself, then you must beware. Because there is only one Savior. There is only one King. There is only one Christ. There is only one person worthy of our heart's devotion. And he is not a Republican, 
and he is not a Democrat, and he is not a fancy, impressive health and wealth preacher promising you in the world. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the one Christ, the one Savior, the King of kings, the one worthy of our heart's devotion. Church, do not be Deceived, do not let the turbulent times we live in allow us to put our hopes in a puny man. Let's anchor our hopes in the king of kings. Let's anchor our hope in the true Christ, the only one who can bring heaven to earth, Jesus. Four directions for unsettling times. Do not be deceived. Secondly, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Listen again to verses six through nine. Jesus continues in his instructions. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. So there it is. Don't be alarmed. See that you are not frightened. When you hear of wars, when you hear of rumors of wars, see that you don't panic. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. And I take it to mean he's talking about the end of the temple. That's the context in which he says the end. It is not the end yet when you hear about these wars. For nation will rise against nation, verse 7, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus says during this time leading up to the destruction of the temple that he's just predicted at the beginning of chapter 24, during that time there are going to be many awful things There's going to be the brutality of war. There's going to be the devastation of earthquakes. There's going to be the misery of famines. But all this, he says, do not be alarmed. Do not be frightened. Do not panic. Do not freak out. Now, this is odd because our natural inclination is to want to do just that when we hear about these terrible things. These frightening things tempt us to be frightened, but Jesus calls us to do the exact opposite. Do not be alarmed. He says these things must take place. Tragically, sadly, war and famine and natural disasters are part and parcel of our fallen world. This is not the way God meant it to be when he created the world, but it is the way it is because of sin. And we as Christians should know this better than anyone. God's world is not the way God made it to be. Our world is wonderful and still has much beauty and glory in it, but it is ultimately cursed because of our sin and things don't work the way God originally intended them to. So we shouldn't be alarmed when war breaks out. We shouldn't be surprised when famine strikes. We shouldn't be shocked at forest fires and tornadoes and floods and the destruction they bring, the rest of the world may see these things and think, the end is near. The world is over. Time to lose our minds. Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Do not get caught up in the frenzy. Keep your cool. The end is not yet. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So if you've given labor, you may know this, but just... 
This past week, I was told by an expert baby birther four times over, my wife, she said, you can feel the faintest contraction anywhere from five to seven weeks before the baby's born. And when you feel those initial labor pains, you don't do anything because these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says it's the same way with war and famine and natural disasters. As terrible as those things are, they are not something that should make us alarmed. As terrible as those things are, they are a normal part of our existence in a fallen, sin-infected world. Do not be alarmed. So guys, the application is not difficult for us, is it? A worldwide pandemic, a now shaky economy, Cultural unrest, political battles, mass rioting, crazy forest fires, devastating hurricanes, mass hysteria. These are just a few of the things that mark our world right now. And I'm not saying these things aren't terrible. Just like Jesus isn't saying that war and famines and earthquakes aren't terrible. They are. But we need not be alarmed. We need not panic. We need not fear. In a fallen, broken world, this is what happens. It doesn't mean we don't take the pandemic seriously. It doesn't mean we don't care that forest fires are being consumed. It means that as we enter uncertain times in our lives, our lives are not to be characterized by fear. We can be strong. We can be confident. We can even be at peace in the chaos. Do not be deceived. Do not be alarmed. And thirdly, unsettling times call for us to endure through trials. Endure through trials. Look once more at verses 9 through 12. Jesus says, Then, after the false Christs, after the wars and famines and earthquakes, that's not all, then they will deliver you, referring to Jesus' disciples, You will be delivered up to tribulation. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many, and I take this to mean many from among the disciples, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, The love of many will grow cold. So, wow, Jesus says it is going to get even more intense. First, he mentions persecution. He says, you'll be delivered up to tribulation. You'll be put to death. You'll be hated. That's persecution. Second, he mentions what we call apostasy or falling away from the faith. Many will fall away and betray one another. Third, he mentions what we call heresy or false teaching. He says, many false teachers will arise and lead many astray. And fourthly and finally, if that weren't enough, immorality will expand. Lawlessness will increase. People's love will grow cold. That's what the church was heading into, leading up into the destruction of the temple. Persecution, apostasy, heresy, immorality. Sounds unsettling, doesn't it? 
But look at what he says in the very next verse, verse 13. All this crazy stuff is gonna happen, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Disciples of Jesus, crazy things are going to happen in our world. Painful things are going to be thrown at you. It's going to tempt you to quit. When persecutors threaten your life, when your friends in the faith fall away, when false teaching seems to be more effective than true teaching, when immorality runs rampant, it is terribly discouraging. And you think, is it even worth it? Why am I even doing this? And so Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who lazy boys his way through the Christian life. No, if your discipleship could be liking to chilling on an inner tube floating down a lazy river, then you are dead meat. Your discipleship has got to have some endurance to it. Your discipleship won't make it through the crazy things that the world throws at us. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Brothers and sisters, getting to heaven is not like just standing on an escalator, being ferried your way up without effort. No, we are going upstream. We are swimming against the current. And so weak-willed, spineless, shallow, consumeristic, me-centered, what about my needs? Christians are going to get eaten alive by the world and what they throw at us. They don't stand a chance. Those who will be saved, those who are going to make it to the gates of glory are going to be the ones who endured, are going to be the ones who suffered for Christ. So in your discipleship to Christ, are you ready to count the cost? Are you ready to, like Jesus, deny yourself? Are you ready to bear your cross? Are you ready to endure with Christ? On the path to Calvary. Well, if you're ready for that, Jesus assures you that the path to Calvary is the path to glory. The one who endures will be saved. Don't be deceived. Don't be alarmed. Endure through trials. And finally, trust the power of the gospel. Trust the power of the gospel. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says, despite the hostility, despite the turmoil, the spread of the gospel will persist. Now think of this. Christianity began in Jerusalem, Jesus had been crucified. His disciples were meager in number. Many of them were disillusioned because Jesus was crucified and they were waffling in their faith at the end of the gospels after Jesus' death. And these first Christians were submerged in a culture that did not welcome 
the message of Jesus. The gospel was counted weakness by the Jews. They looked at the cross and they thought how weak, how lame, Jesus is defeated. We're not trusting in some crucified criminal. We want a militaristic, powerful king. That was the Jews' attitude toward the gospel. And the Romans, who lived in that culture, to them, the gospel was foolishness. And they thought, how stupid, how senseless. Jesus is a fool. We're not trusting in a murdered prophet. We want a wise, impressive philosopher. That was the attitude of the Romans toward the gospel. The gospel was weakness to the Jews and foolishness to the Romans. That's the culture, that's the audience, that's the context within which the first Christians preached the gospel. So it was not an easy outing. From the outside looking in, it was not a safe bet that the gospel would triumph. There were many barriers to the advancement of Christianity. And so before the whole thing even starts, Jesus gives him their word, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole known world as a testimony to all nations. And that is exactly what happened. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians, chapter one, verses five through six. He's writing to the church there, and the apostle is writing these words just a few decades after Jesus said what he said in Matthew 20. So zooming ahead into the future to check out Jesus' prophecy is what we're doing. Colossians chapter one, verses five through six, the apostle writes this to the church. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, in the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. And we can see this if we look at one of the maps that you'll often find in the back of your Bible. This one pictures the spread of Christianity in the first century. So you look at these maps. <clears throat> You see this big body of water there in the middle is the Mediterranean Sea. There on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea is the city of Jerusalem. It's where Jesus died. It's where Jesus rose. It's where the spirit fell. It's where the church started in that small city in Jerusalem, a handful of followers. That green area represents the growth of Christianity during the first century. And so within that time, the apostle says the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. And what he means is it's bearing fruit within the whole known world. They didn't have any concept for the entirety of the globe. So when they said whole world, they really meant this area because it was about all they knew. That's the spread of the gospel by the end of the first century, just a few decades. And by the middle of the second century, you see the gray area further expanded all the way out. So do you see how Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples? He's saying, all around you, the world is giving way. All around you, chaos and confusion and terror may increase, but don't be won over by some politician's spin. 
Don't succumb to a false teacher's unbiblical garbage. Don't seek after any other power, any other source, any other hope. In unsettling times, you can trust the power of the gospel. Despite the opposition, the gospel will bear fruit throughout the whole world. Despite the bad odds, the good news of God's kingdom will triumph among every nation. Even though we may seem backed into a corner with no space to get out, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it has proven so. You think of people like Saul of Tarsus, a Jew's Jew, who once considered the gospel weak, that same Paul would later write, after the gospel had got a hold of him, that same Paul would later write, I boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may... Had his life transformed... The gospel triumphed in his life. And there are countless testimonies of the gospel's saving power all the way down nearly 2,000 years later to people sitting in this room. The gospel's power has endured all the way from the Middle East to Southeast Michigan. So you can put your trust in the power of the gospel. Politicians are going to come and go. Popular spiritual gurus are going to come and go. False teachers are going to come and go. And the hope they can offer you is empty, fake, temporary. But you can trust the power of the gospel. On your darkest night, you can trust God loves you because of what he did on the cross. In your weakest moment, you can know resurrection power is inside of me because I am United to the resurrection Christ. And in your most painful season of life, you can know you are victorious in Christ because he triumphed through his resurrection. Those truths, that gospel will endure. You can trust it on your darkest night, your weakest moment, and your most painful season of life. And here's what all these things are boiling down to. Don't be deceived, don't be alarmed, endure through trials, trust in the power of the gospel. Here's what all this is boiling down to. God's purposes cannot be stopped. God's purposes cannot be stopped. The temple may be demolished, the White House may go up in flames, our lives may go up in flames. Chaos and confusion and sadness and madness and sin may rock our world, may shake us to our core, but God's purposes cannot be stopped. So do you have this truth anchoring you through this pandemic? Do you have this truth anchoring you through political, cultural craziness? Do you have this truth anchoring you in your deepest possible pain? And I know a lot of us are walking through some painful stuff. Do you have this anchoring you in the midst of your most severe temptation? 
God's purposes cannot be stopped. No need to look to a false Christ, a false savior. No need to be alarmed. Endure through trials. Trust the gospel and let's worship the God whose plans never fail. Let's worship the God who's never surprised. Let's worship the King of kings. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture. And this word this morning that reminds us we are not the first generation to go through a 2020. We are not the first people to go through a crazy season in our world. God, your people have been through it and you've been with them through it. And so God, we thank you for this word that shapes our lives and we pray that by the power of the spirit it would shape our hearts. God, may we hear the voice of Christ calling us to strength. May we hear the voice of Christ calling us to faithfulness. May we hear the voice of Christ calling us to endurance. May we hear the voice of Christ calling us to trust the power of the gospel. God, I pray for all of us connected to Woodside Lapeer that we would be known as people of peace in the midst of the chaos. I pray that we would be known as people of strength and stability in the midst of the madness. And so God, strengthen us to our core. And may we trust and may we celebrate and may we sing of the God whose purpose cannot be stopped. We lift our voices now to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.